What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Drunk Turkey Show. I'm Daniel. Alongside with me is Big Blue. Jaime is in the back and getting his makeup done and did. He'll be uh, joining us here pretty soon. Blue, how you doing, my man? He was getting his beer fluffed. He was getting his beer fluffed. <laughs> <laughs> it's looking good. Looking good. Uh, how you doing, Jaime? Uh, I've been better, man. I've been better. Oh no, man! Is it hot out there? Is it oh, dude, the heat right now is not the problem, man. Today in the morning, I was running late to work, right? So I kind of like rushed, and yeah. and I fell down the stairs, dude. Oh no! Yeah, yeah. I, I landed right on my on my on my wallet. So, so you know, I have a bruise there right now, and it's you know pretty pretty sore, but you know, oh well, it is what it is. Yeah, you need to get more cushion in that thing. <laughs> Definitely, more twerking that'll help. That'll help. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a uh, we got a special guest today. Uh, we have a San Antonio attorney. Uh, his name is Zach Lutz. Uh, how you doing, Zach? Welcome to the Drunk Turkey Show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. <laughs> welcome here. Welcome, welcome. Uh, so you are a uh, an attorney here in the city of San Antonio. Can you kind of um, explain to everybody who you are? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, my name is Zach Lutz, um, attorney in San Antonio, um, bachelor's of arts in criminal justice from St. Mary's in 2012, law school from St. Mary's 2017, and MBA from Texas A&M San Antonio in um, 2021. Uh, I run my own practice, uh, law office of Zachary Lutz, PLLC. Uh, I do criminal law, but uh, mainly I focus on family law, uh, probate litigation, uh, state planning, uh, business, real estate, things like civil law mostly. But I have done criminal law. I've gotten my hands dirty in the criminal arena. and I'm, I'm not afraid to get back in if necessary. Um been licensed since uh, 2019, so I got about four years under my belt, and uh, I've done a lot of cases. Like I've I've been in the thick of it, you know, like courtrooms and really angry parties, you know, like just people that are just totally upset at each other. So uh, that's pretty much me in a nutshell. Nice. Well, welcome to the show. Uh, we're glad to to finally meet. Um, you know, here at, at Drunk Turkey Show, we cover quite a few different cases. Um, primarily one of the largest ones that we've covered here is the uh, Brian Koberger case, uh, the University of Idaho uh, quadruple homicide that occurred November 13th. Uh, that took the lives of Zana Cronodo, Ethan Chapman, Madison Mogan, and Zana, uh, I mean, Kaylee Gonzalez. Uh, are, are you familiar with the case? I know we talked a little bit backstage, but just so that everybody is aware, are, are you, you know, how familiar are you with the Idaho homicides? Not terribly familiar. I mean, I, I didn't even know about it until today. Um, you know, I got the topic um, from your assistant earlier, and so I did some research about it. And uh, basically, as I understand it, some PhD student that was studying criminology allegedly committed this quadruple homicide in this dorm room or something like that. About four people got cut up, like straight out of like a horror movie or something like that. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then allegedly he fled back to his dad's house in Pennsylvania. And then, you know, like uh, after 
them doing the investigation, they found evidence linking them to the scene or whatever. So uh, that's pretty much all I know. And I, I heard about like the other stuff that they're doing, like the plea and all that. So that's about mm -hmm. what I know. Got you, got you. Uh, Big Blue Hyman, y'all got any questions um, for Mr. Lutz so far? I'll start off with you, Blue. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, well, later on, if y'all, if you can give us our, your information, we can put it out there. There's people saying they might, might need your services, so if you want some. <laughs> it is in the description, y'all. So if y'all guys go check that out, you'll be able to find his uh, address, phone number, and email, and, and all of his contact. I have, no, I have no objection to those proceedings. <laughs> awesome. So, so um, yeah, you 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 got most of that correct. You know, the uh, it was a quadruple homicide in which where uh, Brian Koberger is allegedly of uh, he's been arrested and charged for the uh, for the murders. Um, it was a off campus residence house. It was a three bedroom home with six occupants at the time. Four were. Uh, Four who had their lives taken, two who were uh, remained alive. Uh, there's a lot of conversation there about a time frame in which it occurred. So the murders had occurred at approximately between four and four twenty-five in the morning. Uh, during we find out during the uh, the probable cause affidavit that one of the surviving roommates actually sees the uh, assailant in the house, clad in black with a mask on. But 911 isn't called until noon, right? Now, 911 isn't called by one of the surviving roommates. It's called by a friend of the surviving roommates who was summoned to the house. Now, as a defense attorney, um, having that information off the top of, you know, from the get-go, is that something that would favor the defense, just given the amount of time uh, that it took for 911 to be called? Well, yeah, actually, I think it would because I mean, um, like again, nine one one wasn't called by the suspect. You know, it was called by somebody else. Did I get that right? Right. It wasn't called by one of the uh, surviving victims. It was called by. So there was two survivors, one named Dylan, one named Bethany, and it is believed that one of uh, their friends was called over to the house, mm -hmm. and that person is who called nine one one. I see. And, and we we don't know who, like, informed the friend or whatever? No, nothing. Everything's been kind of under seal. The 911 tape hasn't been released. Um, I have spoken mm -hmm. with one of the uh, victim's family members. I spoke to Christy Gonsalves, um, Kaylee's mom, and she had informed me that they had spoken directly with the person that called 911. And from what um, they were told was that he was summoned by the girls, uh, he showed up. The uh, door was um, he couldn't open one of the doors to the bedrooms because one of the bodies was blocking it uh, mm -hmm. and that he was managed to get it open enough to peer in and see what the crime scene was. And then at that point, 911 was called. And so okay. uh, <clears throat> up until that point, 911 wasn't wasn't uh, called. Well, it, it's helpful for the defense because like there's a big. Uh... There's a big chain of custody issue now, you know, because it's like what happened in between those hours, you know, like uh, anything could have happened between that time. Now, mm -hmm. depending on who called, who informed the friend, like that's kind of what I want to know, because like um, if it's the suspect, you know, and he's like informing one of them like, hey, look what I did, you know, like he yeah. wants to be caught or something like that. If it's him, 
then that doesn't look good. But if it's some intervening third party, then yeah, I guess it would look good. It depends. Now that's a big lawyer answer. Yeah. Right. So to, to our knowledge, the, the suspect Brian Koberger had no connection to, to anybody in the house. Um, per the defense's statements, there was zero connection between Koberger and the victims. Uh, the persons that called nine one or the persons that called the friends over were the surviving roommates. Mm-hmm. And so um, they were cleared early on in this investigation as not having anything to have been, you know, done, had anything to do with the crime. Yeah. Just because law enforcement clears a person, does that necessarily leave them, um, I guess, close to the, a defense's attack? Can a defense basically like, one of the other persons that has been highly uh, sus- suspect throughout, you know, the court of public opinion is Kaylee Gonzalez's ex-boyfriend. Now, police cleared him. Does that does that hinder the defense as pointing as him as a possible other suspect? No, I wouldn't say it hinders the defense at all. I mean, the defense can call them as a witness. Like, um, I think I was watching one of your other live streams and, uh, like you had mentioned about like, uh, if the prosecution calls them or if they don't call them, like, uh, can the defense call them? Like if either side calls a witness, they're fair game for the other side, you know? So if the defense calls us a witness, prosecution can cross examine them and vice versa. So, um, just because they were cleared, like, um, they, they can still show up in court and have to testify about something. Gotcha. Yeah. Now what I was referencing in that situation was um, if, if I'm on the uh, prosecution and big blues on the defense and big blue, uh, big blue has a witness that is on his witness list that I want to cross examine, but I don't list them as a witness on my list. If big blue doesn't, you know, call them up to, to be uh, examined, I can't call them up, correct? No, you can. Okay. So, yeah, then. At least under Texas rules. Now, I do have to make a disclaimer. Like, I'm a Texas attorney, and this is Idaho. So, like, um, it's different rules there, like, a a little bit. There's a lot of overlap, but there are some differences. But in Texas, you could definitely call them if they're on their witness list. So, what do you think about when the defense is relying on a state witness to cross-examine them uh, in effort to come up with a possible alibi for their witness or for their defendant. Yeah, I know where you're going with this. Um, I, you know, frankly, I think uh, Koberger, that's his name. Uh, yeah. I think he might have some kind of mental issue and his lawyer, his legal team is really having like struggling to get him under control. Like, cause, um, you know, we, we mentioned, um, that he put it, he didn't put it in a plea. You know, he mm-hmm. did that standing silent thing. You know, he probably ordered his lawyer not to, not to do a plea. So they just had to stand silent, you know? So, um, but if I was his lawyer, I'm like, what do you mean stand silent? You need to plead guilty. I mean, you plead not guilty. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. You need to plead not guilty. And then now they're coming up with this alibi thing. And if I'm not mistaken, it's already after their deadline. You know, like they had a deadline to do an alibi defense and they're doing it afterwards. So what I suspect happened was the attorney told him, 
look, you're under some serious trouble here, sir. You need to start taking this seriously or you're going to end up in jail and there ain't nothing we can do to help you. Mm-hmm. So um, probably, uh, and you know, the alibi is what? Like he was driving around just randomly at like four o'clock in the morning away yeah. from the scene. Yeah, now, yeah. I'm not so sure I buy that, but um, if I were to give him the benefit of the doubt, uh, if I was in fact driving around aimlessly at four o'clock in the morning, who knows where I was? You know, like I could have been on 281. I could have been on I, um, I-35. You know, I don't remember. I don't remember where I was at that specific time. And um, but the fact that they're relying on some prosecution witness is kind of uh, interesting. I don't know why it would be on their witness list and not theirs like like you're hinting at. Yeah, I just don't understand why they wouldn't put that witness as a witness on, you know, on their side. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Maybe because he, in fact, does not have a witness and they're like they're going to search for some of their testimony to, like, see if they can find something to corroborate that, because that's the best they can do. You know, like when 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 you have a really bad case like that, like um, you kind of just end up throwing everything against the wall and seeing what sticks. You know, so I suspect that's probably what um, his legal defense team is doing. Yeah. Uh, you have a question, Ivan? Oh, no. Uh, no, no. Uh, I was, I was uh, for the chat, for the chat. I was reading <laughs> the chat. I'm sorry. <laughs> no problem. No problem. So the standing silent thing, uh, that, I'm glad you brought that up because that was something that I had wanted to talk to you about. Now, the defense is claiming that the reason why they're doing that is in some sort of protest to the grand jury. So apparently what had occurred was there was a preliminary hearing that was scheduled. And then the state ended up going and doing a grand jury, secret grand jury indictment um, to avoid the preliminary hearing. Now, leading up to that, the state or the defense, I'm sorry, had filed motions that Bethany, one of the surviving roommates, had exculpatory or could have exculpatory evidence and wanted to call her as a witness throughout the preliminary hearing. Her lawyers attempted to quash that subpoena. And during that in, you know, interjection or during that um, course of action, um, they had come to an agreement that Bethany would go and talk to the defense's uh, the defense attorneys and give them their her statement of her accounts that occurred that night. And in efforts, they would in return, they would quash the subpoena and she wouldn't have to testify. They were preparing for this preliminary hearing. And then out of nowhere, a secret grand jury comes up, indicts him. And in fact, Koberger's defense team has filed a motion to dismiss the grand jury indictment uh, based on some some laws from 1887. But <laughs> They're, they're throwing that out there. So mm-hmm. that, that hearing actually is, is on um, this Friday, I think, on August 18th. And so the claim coming from there is that it was at a protest because uh, they wanted to protest that the grand jury indictment was unconstitutional or, or whatever the case may be. Um, d- does that make more sense now as to why he would stand silent? Uh, I, I guess not, not really. I mean, cause see grand juries are used all over the place, you know, like Texas is big on them. And like, I, I don't think there's any case law that says grand juries are unconstitutional. Now, 
if they did if they had some kind of agreement to have a preliminary hearing like in texas we would call that an examining trial and um you know you're entitled to an examining trial as long as you do it within a certain time here in texas so i mean uh i don't know if i were speculating i'm guessing that the prosecutor wanted to get some kind of indictment through and want to just pin him down because i understand that they denied his bail Mm-hmm. Like um, I believe they're so. probably thinking of him as a they're probably thinking of him as a flight risk and like they can't afford to have any kind of um, wiggle room or any chance for him to escape. So um, I'm I'm guessing that's why they did some kind of clandestine grand jury. But you know, grand juries are very common. You know, like it nobody's allowed in. The defense attorney isn't even allowed in, and um, you know they only hear the prosecutor. They don't hear anybody else. And, you know, they don't even allow exculpatory evidence, you know, stuff that would suggest that he actually is innocent. So, of course, most grand juries vote to indict. But um, I, I, I still wouldn't have st- advised him to stand silent. I would have advised him to plead not guilty because, I, I, you know, it's almost like pleading nolo contendere, no contest, you know. I mean, and you do that if you're trying to accept a deal with the prosecutor. So, um yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I think in Idaho, the when you stand silent, the the judge automatically enters a plea of not guilty for you. And so, you know, it seemed like it, it was just I was kind of curious as if it was, you know, something that maybe Koberger was wanting to do or if this was something that his attorney uh, would have recommended. No, <laughs> uh, if, if you're representing a criminal defendant, the last thing you want is a grand jury because they, they always indict every single time. Yeah, and he's well. They're trying to get rid of that right now, and and they're using some sort of law that it doesn't make any sense to me. Because, um, and I'll see if I can pull it up, but it sounds like they were they the defense is saying that in order for the um, you know grand jury to be valid, they must have been given all of the evidence, and since the defense hasn't received all the evidence that's out there yet. They couldn't have have given the evidence to uh, the uh, defense yet, or the or the grand jury, and that it's by code from 1887 in Idaho law that says that the grand jury is like uh, that there is a reason beyond reasonable doubt for the grand jury there, and I think it's just kind of weird that they're going with this, and it's so old, mm-hmm. and it doesn't sound accurate. I mean, that's not what I understand as far as grand jury that the uh, the that beyond reasonable doubt isn't the standard in which, you know, for that setting in that court, I believe it's just the preponderance of, of guilt. Isn't that not correct? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that is right because uh, to actually prove guilt, it has to be beyond a reasonable doubt, but uh, yeah, I think grand jury is um, preponderance of the evidence, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, 100%. So, um, there's a very strict gag order that's going on right now. Some of it is allowing for some misinformation that is going on. Uh, some of the misinformation, you know, that's out there is in favor of Koberger. Some of it is not. When it comes to a defense attorney, when there's a lot of misinformation and you perhaps maybe think that your client could have done the crime, uh, is that beneficial to the defense or not so beneficial? 
I would argue it's not beneficial. Well, I mean, the gag order, depending on how strict it is, it. I, I would say the gag order is beneficial because, um, see, depending on how many people are talking and what's being said in that community, you know, like he might not get a fair trial, you know, like uh, as I understand, he's out of state, you know, so. Oh, you got to understand, like an out-of-state defendant that allegedly killed four hometown boys, uh, or no, it was three women and one man, right? If I'm yeah. not mistaken. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So three, four hometown people, and you know, like those judges and prosecutors, they're elected officials, you know. So it's like they're facing intense political pressure for somebody to hang. So. Um, like with all this public opinion, you know, like uh, trying to get people not to talk about it, it, it might not even be effective, you know, like because like, how, how um, I mean, look, we're talking about it right now. Obviously, we're not subject to a gag order because we're out of state and we're on the Internet. But um, the more publicity it has, I think the worse uh, the defense team has. Now, there is a remedy for that, but it's extreme. Uh, if you'd like me to go into that, you know, I'd be happy to. Yeah, 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 100%. Okay, so, like, if I was if I was representing him, if I was on his defense team, I would already be thinking about a motion to ch- for change of venue. So, like, uh, he's in a county where, like, he's being tried in the county where the crime was committed. It's probably something that this county's never seen before. You know, it's straight out of a horror movie. People are cut up in some room. You know, the people are going to want to crucify him like uh, there's a very good chance that he's not going to get a fair trial if he stays in that county. So us defense attorneys like we have a mechanism or like we can file a motion to change a venue where he's tried in a different county. It's got to be in the same state, obviously, like it could be an adjoining county or something like that. But um, that's something I would seriously be thinking about if I was his lawyer, you know, like they're. The people are going to want his blood, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think what they've done, from what I understand, is that they are bringing in jurors from a different county, but that mm. the court is going to be happening there in Latal County. Okay. And so... That, that, uh, that's a start. Yeah. Um, I mean, do you have any questions? Uh, just, well, right now, just one so far. <laughs> but... um. So there's a gag order, and under, anyone under that gag order violates the gag order. What what will happen? Like, what would that? What, what would be the the outcome of that if they violate that? I, I mean, I haven't read the gag order, so I don't know what it says. But typically, you know, like you could be held in contempt, like uh, be ordered to appear before a judge and explain why you did that. And if the judge doesn't like what you have to say, you can get a fine and possible jail penalty. Mm. So if 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 it's a witness and this witness um, violates it, that witness is no longer uh, able to to appear at court. Uh, no, the the state would probably have to file a motion to suppress, like suppress that witness, and you know the defense would contest it or vice versa. But um, like they could try, and it would be up to a judge at that point to let that testimony in. I mean, and it might be punishment for one side, you know, like, hey, look, like you violated the gag order. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, they're they're probably not likely going to de- penalize the defendant because not it's technically not the defendant's fault. But the witness could be facing like, uh, you know, 
either a fine or jail time or both. Hmm. So, um, Koberger's defense team provided an alibi. Now, in Idaho, apparently, there's a specific date in which you have to have an alibi in. Um, and it's not so much that that if he doesn't provide the alibi, uh, that he's going to tempt of court or anything, but that he wouldn't be able to use an alibi defense come trial if he not provided it by a certain date. And they ended up providing an alibi that he was out driving alone uh, by himself during the commission of the crime. Now, we also know from the public cause affidavit that he turned his phone off before the crime was committed and then turned it on afterwards, uh, you know, about a little bit in time in there between. So the crime was committed between four and four twenty five and um, his phone turns off at three before he leaves the neighboring city where he's from Pullman, Washington. And then it turns on when he's south of Moscow, Idaho. Do you think, what, what do you think about, well, first and foremost, if you were Koberger's attorney, would you have even provided an alibi at this point? I mean, I don't think that this is an alibi that could be used, in, you know, for his defense come trial. I think that this only hurts him, in my opinion. What are your thoughts on his alibi and, and the defense's decision to provide it? I don't think it necessarily hurts him. Like, uh, yeah, like the fact that he turned his phone off during that period, it is suspicious, but in and of itself, it doesn't prove guilt, you know, and again, with a criminal law, it's like um, you got to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. So, you know, that's enough to prove some reasonable doubt. Not well, you know, it, it, it muddies the water a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. Now about like the alibi, like, again, this is why I kind of think that he's not thinking straight and his lawyers are having to kind of grab him by the neck you know like look you know you're under some serious trouble and i know you think that somehow you're magically going to get exonerated but no you need to start facing reality so they probably did a lot of convincing to try to like look you need to give us something all right fine i was out driving around you know okay fine he was out driving around go tell the prosecutor you know so um uh, and even though it's late, you know, like the judge is probably going to let it slide because, um, you know, a man's life is at stake. You know, they're they're um, seeking the death penalty. So um, when you have stakes that high, the, the courts are likely to be more lenient. You know, like in a civil case, you know, it's like uh, it, you're late on discovery sanctions. Boom. You know, like so. But when the stakes are that high, you know, it's, the courts are more forgiving. So um, I think. It sounds to me like the defense is doing the best they can with what they have. Uh, like, I, I really think their client is uh, uh, <laughs> not thinking straight, you know. Uh, well, he's grasping at straws. I don't think he, you know, Idaho is a, uh, a death penalty state. And so, um, you know, I, I don't think they've even offered him as that as a plea, to be honest with you, uh, given the nature of the crime and, and how this goes. But, you know. Koberger's been very adamant that he is uh, innocent, that he, uh, he said that he looked forward at his when he was arrested, apparently said that he looks forward to um, uh, being exonerated. So mm -hmm. we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, would you have, you know, given the, uh, the understanding of not being able to use an alibi as a defense, um, and if your client was adamant that, you know, that he wanted to go to trial, would you have 
given a defense of him driving around or would you have just stayed silent? No, I would, I would have given the defense. I mean, cause you got to throw everything against the wall and see what sticks, you know, like, and here, here's a trick that us lawyers have that not a lot of people know, like you can plead in the alternative. Like um, mm-hmm. you can say one thing and um, you can say something that's contradictory. Uh, you know, as long as you're, pleading is accurate you know what i mean like um trying to think of an example like um but basically you're pleading two affirmative defenses and they might not be consistent like you just plead them anyway you know in the alternative but without waiving the foregoing so right now judge we're saying he was out driving around while these murders were being committed so it couldn't have been him Uh, eventually when we get to trial if the court if the jury or the judge doesn't buy it then we have to rely on something else you know, but in, for the meantime, that's our story and we're sticking to it. Got you. Well, it makes a little bit more sense because I, I, I often question that. What's up, big boy? I'm going to tell him. So what do you think of um, them trying to bring back the shooting squad as a death penalty? <laughs> the firing squad? Firing squad, yeah. Yeah. Um, isn't that still the death penalty in some states? Or um, I know there's what there's lethal injection, the chair. Mm-hmm. Most most states have like opted for lethal injection because it's cleaner or the gas chamber. Yeah. 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 They the the firing squad is only in in case uh, the uh, they can't get the uh, the medicine for the lethal injection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's as a backup. It's as a backup. Um, so in March, the state notified the court that the state has become aware of potential Brady Giglio material related to one of the officers involved uh, in the case. Now, we've looked through, um, you know, a lot of the officers and things of that nature. We suspect that um, what they're re- referencing to is uh, there was, I think, two officers and it was the first two responding officers that responding to the call initially had a situation where. Um, during the pandemic, uh, uh, the college was protesting the mask and created a uh, sticker that um, symbolized uh, Soviet Russia, Moscow, the, the little emblem. And um, it said it had the we enforce because we care, which is what the law enforcement in Moscow, Idaho, uh, that was what they were promoting about, you know, why they were promoting the uh, enforcement of the mask. Well, anyways. Um, there was an incident where one juvenile placed a sticker on a light pole and one of these officers came and that juvenile was with his brother who was an adult. They separated both of them. Uh, They questioned the juvenile without the parents um, around and and things of that nature. And they were arrested and charged these individuals with um, uh, some sort of criminal mischief. Uh, They lied in court and stated that there was no body cam footage and come find out later there in fact was body cam and they claim there's no audio, but there was body cam. And in that body cam, you can see that they had separated uh, the two juveniles and they were talking to uh, the younger one. Uh, They can't hear what is being said. Now their claim was that that didn't happen, that they never separated them or talked to them. So I believe that's the situation referencing the Brady Giglio is that they lied under oath. And then there was some documentation or, or, or footage that came forward. Can that affect this uh, the state's um, case against the defendant 
the you know those prior actions of the officers who responded to the crime they didn't investigate it they weren't you know detectives or anything else in this case okay so it was like an unrelated case there uh, where they they lied basically yeah they lied under oath but their involvement was just responding to the crime yeah if, if, if i was the defense attorney i'd bring it up i'd, I'd move to strike their their testimony mm-hmm. yeah yeah mm-hmm. that, that's well, that's totally fair game well, what would you think of her going after their training uh, records they, she wanted the um, police officer training records within the police academy what would that prove uh yeah again that's probably just that what I, I keep saying on here uh throwing everything against the wall and seeing if it sticks like probably what she's trying to get after is like um are there any holes in their training like did they skip a day or something like that do they not do they have proper certification to do xyz because uh, if they don't have proper certification that's something else you can attack as the defense attorney um I guess I guess I would do the same thing if I were her. I mean, like, uh, hmm. and see, it's a public defender's office, so they're not getting paid until like the end, you know, or they're getting paid by the county. So I mean, like, that, that's a lot of work, you know, to have to sift through training records for these officers. I mean, I guess just to cover my, you know, what, like, I probably would ask the same thing, but. I'm not sure how important training records are going to be. Like the fact that they lied on their job duty, like that's, that would be what I would be going after. Now there's documentation where um, there's, there was DNA found from Brian Coburger and it was found on a sheath uh, that was found underneath the body of one of the victims. Now the defense attorney has indicated or alluded that that sheath or that DNA was placed there. Uh, is it possible that they can get any of that thrown out because of the responding officers and their, you know, issue with the Brady Giglio? Yeah, it's possible. Um, I think they did something similar in the OJ trial. Like there was some big uh, hoopla about chain of custody with DNA evidence. And that's, that was kind of critical to OJ getting off the hook. But um you know, speaking about the sheath, you know, like uh, one th- one thing I was reading in my research before this episode was um, like apparently like the sheath was left at the scene, but only Koberger's DNA was on it. Is that right? Or was there other victims DNA on it? There was. Um, so we don't know how much DNA was found on it. The The only thing that we know are aware of is that the sheath was found button face down with DNA Mm -hmm. in the inside of the button that belonged to Koberger. Uh, We do know that there was two other DNA profiles that was found um, near or where the bodies were located, Uh, not Mm -hmm. necessarily on the sheath or any of those things, but there was some, there was some curious like wording in that document. For instance, it said that as of December 17th, you know, there was unidentified male DNA, where two of the bodies were at right but as of december 17th the dna on the sheath was also unidentified it wasn't until december 19th when they identified uh, brian Kobert as a possible um, person connected to that dna through the genetic tree that the fbi created mm-hmm. and so you know i thought it was just a play on words to create as a tactic to create reasonable doubt that's probably exactly what it is but 
uh, like what I read, um, assuming what I read was accurate, you know, because like the stuff's all over the place. Like allegedly they found only Koberger's DNA on it. And, you know, like a, an attorney that was writing brought up a good point. Why was only his DNA on it? Like, shouldn't there be four more sets of DNA since that was the alleged sheet that held the murder weapon, the knife? Right, right. You know, I'm not sure if it specifies whether or not there was other, you know, victims DNA. It just specifies that there was a, a single source DNA that was located in the sheath. But okay, because the if there's is, only one set of DNA, then that kind of lends credence to the argument that maybe it was planted. That's true. If there wasn't any other DNA on, especially where it was located, it was located underneath the body of one of the victims who was brutally stabbed in a bed where two of the victims laid, and so mm -hmm. you had. You had two victims, um, we suspect, laying down and asleep in the same bed when allegedly Koberger attacked them. And, you know, we're assuming, you know, that he went in there without the knife sheath attached to a belt. Um, we don't think that that, you know, came off during the commission of the crime. Uh, you know, I, I think that if possible that if it did get underneath her body, maybe, and that was the first person that was attacked, I think that there would yeah, that's right. There should her DNA should be all over that. Mm -hmm. But so. I, I think uh, I think what happened was this is my theory is she was the first victim on that floor. He took the sheath off, probably threw it to the side of the bed, and when he like started attacking her, maybe she kicked the sheet over it, and then it was covered. So there's no way another DNA can be on there. Um, because they found it under the body. They didn't, they didn't find it on around where all the blood was i guess but yeah. you know the crime scene photos will tell the best answer that we just had this locally going to be released and you know like depending on how much of a struggle there was you know like uh if there was in fact a struggle and say like maybe the victim like knocked the sheath off trying to like defend herself or whatever you know and uh, i think you had mentioned something daniel on the last episode like when you're in a when when you're in a situation like that you're not really thinking you know so i mean it's quite possible that the the perpetrator just left the sheath there and forgot about it you know after it because it was yeah. just too much going on you know yeah i think that i very much think that this was Koberger's first time there's um you know i think he planned this very meticulously you know he's very calculated and you know, there's a difference between like preparing uh, for the crime and then committing the crime. Right. And I, and I think we see that we see that in uh, Linda Lane footage where his vehicle is passing by and it passes by three different times. And on the mm -hmm. fourth time, it starts to drive erratic. And what we know is that between the third and the fourth time, uh, Xana receives a, a DoorDash order. Now, I speculate that because of the location of where their house was, it was a little bit tricky to get to that. They may have left the light on as an indicator to the door dasher of where their house was at. My 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 speculation is that once that food order was received, that that light was turned off. Now, Koberger wasn't just in that area. He'd been driving around. If the door dasher went and dropped off the food during the, the time or between the time in which he drove there and wasn't in the area, Koberger would have never known that that light was on as an indicator for food. He may have just assumed that it was on because somebody was awake. And then when he passed by after 4 a.m., 
sees the light off, he may just assume that they fell asleep at that point, not necessarily that they received something. Mm -hmm. And so once that happens, Koberger begins to do, allegedly, if it is him, a white vehicle, you see him doing some weird stuff. It is doing a three-point, it's doing a turnaround at one of the apartments, and then it fails to park in front of the house or do a turnaround there. And then it does another three-point turnaround at the uh, following intersection and then comes back around. And so to me, right away, as soon as it became go time or it was real, he started to make mistakes immediately. And so I can see how he would have forgotten the knife sheath, especially during all the commotion of everything that was going on. Um, You know, I I can see that being a situation, especially if if somebody is saying something or he's hearing somebody else awake in the house after he committed the crime. You know, uh, according to the probable cause affidavit, Zana, one of the victims, was awake at 412. She was on her TikTok and Dylan states that she hears one of the other, you know, you know, who she thinks is Kaylee, but they suspect it being Zana, say the words, you know, I think someone's here. Mm-hmm. You know, if Dylan heard that, is it possible that Brian Koberger heard that upstairs and went downstairs to go find where that came from? You know, and, you know, because he heard somebody talking and, you know, in his hurry to go find out where it was at, it's possible he forgot the sheath. I think so. Yeah. Panic set in. 100%. Panic could have set in. <laughs> now, Koberger is alleged to have committed this crime against four individuals very violently. And yet the uh, in this, the defense's um, motion or objection for the state's motion for protective order, uh, there is a um, an interesting statement. It states that there is a lack of explanation or there is no explanation for the total lack of victims DNA in the. Uh, in the in Koberger's vehicle. Now, one, does total lack to you mean no evidence? Or does that mean based on the nature of this crime, we would assume that there'd be more than what was found? Mm-hmm. Uh j- normally us in law we use plain language. So when I hear total lack, uh, that that suggests zero to me. like zero evidence but i mean if it's a forensic scientist talking total lack could mean just statistically insignificant like um you know not enough to like move on anything like maybe a strand of hair or something like that but um total lack would imply that there's none so that that would be my final answer (laughs) locking that in (laughs) all right well that's good to know and the way I, I, I would say is because he's got a PhD in criminal or the criminal justice, and he's also, um, what was he trying to? He was trying to get a. Uh, he had a uh, he had a he had his bachelor degree in psychology, a master's degree in criminology, and was in the PhD program. Y'all are saying he was trying to get a job at the police force or something like that? Yes. He, yes. So, so as a requisite for the uh, PhD program, he had to be an intern at one of the local police departments. That's what I was mm-hmm. trying to get to. He was trying to get an intern. And he was also um, taught how to do a forensic, uh, you know, cleanup and forensic, I guess, collection of the evidence. I think he would have enough knowledge to be able to cover his body when he left the 
when he left the house and to put everything in away. Like I would say, he probably wore like a like a jumpsuit or some kind of PPE to be able to just dispose of it before he even got in his car. That's why there's no trace in the car. Right. And so, I mean, I, I think that Koberger, you know, he had prior knowledge of forensics and how more so how this crime would have been investigated. And so I think he took some precautionary steps to elude the investigation, which would have included, you know, dextering up his vehicle to make sure that there was nothing left behind. Um, but yeah, this is one of the statements here. And, and it brings me to, to the, uh, the next question, which a lot of folks are concerned about, which is the genetic genealogy. So apparently from what I understand from all of the uh, court documents was that the uh, state had exhausted their traditional techniques. They had gone to the FBI and the FBI basically was going to do a genetic free, like an ancestry type of thing to kind of determine you know, Brian Koberger's, um, you know, relatives to kind of point towards him. Now, what had happened was there was a, uh, the, the DNA was found on the sheath that uh, at, a, at the Moscow lab, an STR profile was made. Um, that sheet or that profile, a sample of that profile was sent to a Texas lab where a SNP profile was created to determine uh, the genetic tree. While they were doing that, that's when the FBI took over the case and created their own genetic tree and basically came back, back to Moscow saying, you should investigate Brian Koberger. The state or law enforcement then created a case against Brian Koberger and got a warrant for his DNA to match the DNA on the sheath. The state does not want to use the genetic genealogical tree information that the FBI provided. The defense has a problem with that. The defense wants the information from the genetic tree. Um, I don't see how it would make a difference. Now, uh, if if you were the pro uh, the defense, you know, how would you feel first and foremost uh, about the so-called tip that the prosecution had, which was the FBI saying, look at my client, Koberger, uh, we did a genetic tree, but you can't use this against him. Is that legal? You know, that seems to be one of the biggest arguments for the defense. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I'm following. So like the state exhausted their their technology, so they took it to the FBI FBI took it over and then they did their own genetic uh, markup, genetic genealogy. And th that's like what the basis of this motion here, that there's no connection between Colbert no. and the victim. No, 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 no. My bad. Th that was just from what we were talking about earlier. Okay. So what had occurred was um, according to DOG pol DOJ policy, Department of Justice policy, the genetic tree cannot be used unless all law enforcement, um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Unless all of their techniques have been exhausted, right? All conventional techniques have been exhausted and they have no leads. So what occurred during this case was they found the DNA on the sheath and they ended up creating a uh, profile. They checked it with CODIS and came back nothing. They checked several different people, several 
um, individuals that came forward, whether it was, you know, the victim's ex-boyfriend or other individuals that they were investigating and it didn't match anybody. Uh, they had no leads. And so because of the uh, policy uh, that allowed the FBI to create that genetic tree, which pointed in the direction of Brian Koberger. Now, the FBI is saying that that genetic tree that they created that pointed to Koberger is only a tip. It's only a tip. Mm-hmm. And that the the state still needed to build their case against Koberger and, and build evidence against them. The defense is upset that they don't have the work that the FBI did. The, the, the state has not provided the genetic tree stuff. The state is saying that it is only a tip and that they are they have no intention of using any of the information from the FBI that built that tree as evidence against Koberger so they don't have to give it up. Mm-hmm. And so that's oh, okay. the big argument now. Okay, I, I see what's going on now. All right. So, yeah, um, basically, it sounds like the state is relying on the FBI's tree then. And um, since they're not giving it up, that's the the prosecution can't like uh, dissect it, like get their own genetic expert in there to either um, verify or poke holes in that um, process. So right. that, that that's why the state that's why the defense is um, pitching a fit about that. Like they want to examine that themselves and get their own experts. And because state's not giving it up, that means they're being denied that. So, um, yeah, I would put up that argument if I was representing him, too. Yeah. But OK, so let's just say that. That the uh, the, the defense were to win that argument and the state has to hand over the FBI work. What is the optimum goal of the defense with that that information? Uh, it's very much a crapshoot, you know, like if it confirms like uh, that he did it and it's ir- irrefutable, then it could like uh, bite him in the you know what. But um, the defense is probably thinking we got to find something to, to try to get him off the hook. So this is the best we can do with what we have. Like um, it, it could very well backfire, you know, and I think the defense team is taking a calculated risk in doing that. Now. Let's just say the defense were to get it and they find out that in the process from it going from the lab in Houston to Quantico, where FBI did their thing, that there was a mishandling chain of custody was broken. Mm -hmm. How would that affect the STR profile that was created on the sheath and that connecting to Brian Koberger's cheek? If there is a chain of custody issue, I mean, that would be helpful for the defense because, uh, uh, if there is a chain of custody issue, that's a grounds to file a motion to suppress. And, you know, if you can suppress the FBI's work, then what do they have? Like they would have this, the state's own work and, you know, like that they already admitted they couldn't find anything. So um, I think a chain of custody foobar would, would be helpful for the defense. But the state isn't using the FBI's work to convict him. So even if they had that part thrown out, my question is the profile that was created or, you know, off the sheath that after later on they got the the information or or the warrant for Koberger arrest, and they ended up getting a warrant to test a buccal swab of DNA from his cheek 
to the to the sheath DNA, what difference does that genetic FBI stuff do if they're not even planning on using it? If the optimum goal is to suppress that, isn't that where we're at right now by them not using it? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm not sure if the FBI has the authority to tell the state they can't use it. I mean, um, mm -hmm. I, I'm not I'm not sure what they're what they're basing that on, like federal, like like a federal jurisdiction versus state jurisdiction, because, you know, it's they, because they, it's because they didn't actually test Koberger's DNA to the sheath. So they're saying that because all they did was create a tree that pointed to relatives of Koberger and stated, all right, you know, based off of this DNA, we created an ancestry profile. So we have all of these people over here that are related mm -hmm. to the suspect. You know, we went and did social media, investigative tools, web sleuth the crap out of it, and then pointed to this guy who was a relative to um, all these other guys, these other folks. This guy here has a white Elantra and he lives in the area. Mm -hmm. More than likely it's him. But since the FBI did not test uh, Koberger's DNA to the sheath, they, they can't use that. That's their argument. They can't use it in court because they didn't test it themselves to the sheath. Uh, now, had they, then that would have closed out the investigation that I think they would have. But, but, but whose argument is that? Is that the, the state's or the defense? That's the state's argument. Okay. I think the other reason is because there is some laws that they're going around because they can't use certain DNA trees um, against people. When it comes to convictions yeah that's true too but but it, but again it's like all right if if the optimum goal is to suppress the genetic genealogy gene, genealogical evidence and that would mean that they wouldn't be able to use that against Koberger. they aren't using it against Koberger. wouldn't we just be back at square one well yeah i mean so th they didn't hmm like uh All right. Now we're, we're, we're talking solely about DNA. I mean, like, was there anybody that placed Koberger at the scene? I don't think so. Right. No, there is. There's nothing that places him at the scene. Apparently that is, from what I understand, the only DNA in the house, including on the victims. Well, under if, their if, fingernails. The, if, if the state doesn't have any DNA evidence and they don't have any eyewitnesses placing him in the scene, then. <laughs> Why did they indict him? I mean, it doesn't seem like they have any actual evidence then. If they, well, they, there is a slight eyewitness, but I'm not sure if they've done a lineup with Dylan. She saw a, yeah. a, a uh, what, she, uh, the guy with the mask, the guy yeah, with the, the mask with, with bushy eyebrows, uh, over five nine, I think, walking out the house with no knife, with no knife, yeah, and not covered in blood. And, not uh, covered in blood. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It seems really sketchy to me. I mean, like, I, <laughs> you know, uh, hmm. now, so basically, from what I understand, this is the way they, this is my understanding of how they came across Coburger and how they investigate him. So, on on the 29th of um, of November, so this incident occurred November 13th. The mm -hmm. 29th of November, uh, or the 25th of November, Moscow, Idaho Police Department shares with WSU police in the neighboring Pullman, Washington area uh, that they're looking for a white Elantra 2011 to 2013. 
Coburn drives a 2015 Hyundai Elantra. Uh, you know, what they end up doing is they end up going out and doing a search and canvassing areas of vehicles that are registered uh, to students uh, that have a white four-door sedan similar to that Elantra. They find Coburgers on November 29th. Uh, from my understanding, from several different articles that are out there, um, because the way they investigated this case was they looked at, they pulled out warrants for the tower, the cell tower that was nearest yeah. to the victim's residence. And they uh, they were aware that this incident had occurred between 4 and 4.30. So the warrant was for all phones that connected to that tower between 3 and 5. Uh, within a third, uh, a what was it, like a half mile radius of the house. Now, Koberger has his phone off uh, at 2.30 or 2.47. His phone does come back on between that three and five period, but he's about three or four miles south of Moscow already. And so mm -hmm. he's not coming up in this deal here. From what I understand is they kind of just put him on the back burner, didn't look at him. Um, December 16th, and the reason I believe that's December 16th, he's uh, pulled over by Indiana police officers traveling to the Poconos, uh, according to you know, where he lives, Pocono Mountains in Pennsylvania, and he's staying over there until he ends up getting arrested. According to a couple of different articles that have come out, uh, December 19th from the New York Times article is when uh, the genealogical tree comes back and is pointing at Brian Koberger as a suspect. Mm -hmm. uh, December uh, 20th, um, or also, yeah, December 20th, there's a white Hyundai Elantra that is crashed, that is found in Eugene, Oregon. And according to a Howard Bloom article, uh, the police get excited about that vehicle. And so that tells me that if they thought that Brian Koberger was the crashed vehicle in Eugene, Oregon, then they didn't have eyes on him because uh, they would have known he was in Pennsylvania at the time. And so uh, also, According to the state's documents, they can only do the genetic tree unless there is no lead. And so they had to have had no leads on him, mm -hmm. uh, which also brings up another question. They never changed the fact that they were looking for something newer than a 2013 Elantra. And one of the defense's arguments is that uh, they never changed that vehicle until after they had his had Brian Koberger's name. And so they made that evidence fit Koberger versus the other way around. Yeah. And so, so that's one big argument that they have. Yeah. And then we have like, um, if I remember correctly, there's surveillance footage of him of, or not of the, the white Elantra driving around yes. the, the place. So, yes. I mean, really we're talking about surveillance footage of the vehicle and um cell phone records that just show that the cell phone was in the area mm -hmm. right i mean that's pretty weak if you think about it you know well yes they, they still have 51 terabytes of information that they haven't um said anything about yet oh, so okay so I, i'm guessing if he did plan any of this attack it will be somewhere in there like in text messages or something like that well, I think a lot of it, though, is like surveillance footage from uh, different because they have multiple. It, it says on there they have multiple angles or multiple footage of Brian Koberger's vehicle uh, throughout two different cities. So I'm assuming that it's probably like 24 hours worth of uh, of surveillance on specific different cameras. Um, but so the name Brian Koberger comes out now. You're right. The one of the things that they have 
on him are the phone pings. And that's where my next question comes from. According to the probable cause affidavit, and I, I strongly suspect December 19th, they're like, oh, crap, we have this guy, Brian Koberger. Let's go build a case against him. First thing that they're going to want to do uh, is find out about his, um, you know, his whereabouts uh, the night of the incident. Now, they go and get a warrant for his locations. Now, the warrant is, is, is suspicious to me. I'm going to try to pull it up. All right. So the warrant that the, the information that they use to get the warrant for Brian Koberger's phone data pings there, it says here, it says based on information provided by the WSC website, Koberger is currently a PhD student in criminology at the Washington State University. Pursuant to records provided a member of the interview panel for the Pullman Police Department, we learned that Koberger's past education included undergraduate degrees in psychology and cloud-based forensics. These records also show Koberger wrote an essay when he applied for the internship at the Pullman Police Department in the fall of 2022. Koberger wrote in his essay that he had an interest in assisting rural law enforcement agencies with how to better collect and analyze technological data and public safety operations. Koberger also posted a Reddit survey, which can be found on an open source internet search. That survey asked for participants to provide information to understand how emotions and psychological traits influence decision-making when committing a crime. As part of this investigation, law enforcement obtained search warrants to determine the cellular device that utilized cellular towers in close proximity to the King Road residence on November 13th, between 3 and 5 a.m. After determining that Koberger's phone, Koberger was associated both with the white Elantra and the phone, investigators reviewed the search warrants. A query was done and the return shown that the phone did not um, connect to the sources in close proximity or to the tower in close proximity to the King Road residence. Based on training and experience, um, they believe that uh, it says here, law enforcement officers specializing in the utilization of the cell towers or cell records. As part of this investigation, individuals can either leave their cell phone at a different location before committing a crime or turn their cell phone off prior to going to a location to commit the crime. This is done by subjects in effort to avoid alerting law enforcement that cellular device associated with them was in particular error when the crime was committed. Uh, they also goes to say that they know that, you know, when they're planning the crime that they'll keep the phone on. And so it says here that on December 23rd, he applied and was granted for a search warrant for the historical phone records between uh, November 12th and November 14th. My question to you is the mere fact that he was a uh, criminology student and had information on how he would have been investigated uh, tech, you know, from a foren technological forensic aspect enough to violate his civil rights to go look at his Cell phone pings. Uh, probably not. Like, um, and you know, he your argument is he's got specialized knowledge, and and he he potentially used that specialized knowledge to commit a crime and get away, try to get away with it. Uh, and I, I don't think that inherently, in and of itself, would be like prejudicial to him per se, because. I mean, they could have pinged like everybody in the area or everybody that was um, like, you know, in order to argue prejudice, you know, you'd have to argue that like um, it affected him in a certain way that it wouldn't anybody else. So, I mean, who cares if he was a criminology student, you know, like his cell phone pings happened to ping at that place in that time uh during that time frame so i mean um 
I, I don't see that argument carrying water. I think the search warrant would probably stick. Like it wouldn't uh, be suppressed. Really? Yeah, because I, I felt that if I was, you know, I'm not an attorney or a defense attorney, but I always thought that, uh, or I felt that just because he had knowledge of how to get away with it, so does everybody that attends the criminology department there in Pullman, Washington. And, you know, are they doing a search warrant on everybody's phone pings that is connected to that program? You know what I'm saying? I think that, that you open up, a, you know, for that to being an issue. Now, do you think that the defense would have a leg to stand on to have his self historical data phone pings uh, suppressed? Yeah, if the state can make if the, if the defense can make some kind of argument where that uh, it was a violation of his Fourth Amendment uh, right against search and seizures, like you know, back in the '60s, like that was a big thing. Like everything was excluded during the, that time, like the '60s and '70s. But the '80s onward, like they kind of carved up the exclusionary rule to where like uh, they made so many exceptions to it that it's almost it doesn't exist anymore. So um, I, I don't know. They, I think they'd be in an uphill battle um, trying to suppress the ping records. Like, because we're, we're talking about that tower, right? That specific phone tower. Right. Well, they have some kind of cast thing that the FBI did uh, where they're able to use historical um, data and somehow it's, it's, it's more accurate than phone pings from the tower. Apparently mm -hmm. it measures the time it takes for a, a signal to go from the tower to the phone and back. And, uh, um, I'm, I'm, I think it's referencing his specific ping. So it would have been his location throughout that entire time and what towers he would have connected to. Okay. Now, initially it was that specific tower. And what I think they did was, um, they looked at the three to five range, the half mile radius, didn't see Koberger attached to it. His vehicle was a 2015. They thought it was a 2011 or 13. So they uh, they went on to the next person. They had like over 9,000 tips. So I think they were moving fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's fairly what happened. But all right. So if the defense wants to come out and try to suppress you know, the historical phone pings. At what point would we expect to see those motions? Should that be something that's happening now, already have had happened? Or is that something that we should see after this motion for, um, you know, this whole uh, grand jury thing? Uh, I mean, it, it really can happen anytime before trial. Like, ideally, it should be happening now, you know, like uh, the sooner the better, because they're going to have to have a hearing in front of a judge to um, to, to hash it out and to actually order it suppressed. So, like, uh, the longer you wait, the more risk you have of the judge just saying, no, I'm not suppressing it. So um, it, it would behoove the prosecution to do it early, and I think now would be a good time to do it. Like, at yeah. least at least get the motion on file. You know, like, it might take, like, a month or two to actually get it heard. But like uh, they really should be filing stuff now. Yeah, one hundred percent. What's up, Jaime? You have a you have a question? Well, I was wondering. <clears throat> um, we had information 
But we have information right uh, about the phone pings, uh, about the DNA, and all that stuff. But how come we're not hearing the 911 call? What do you think that's the case? Uh, it might be privileged. Like, um, th there's a privilege uh, in most jurisdictions called informer identity privilege. And um, if the 911 caller identified themselves that reported who reported the crime, uh, the state's going to want to keep that identity under wraps, like at least until trial. Like, there are some exceptions to that. But um, that would be my guess. Like, there's some kind of privilege that the state is trying to enforce against uh, having hmm. one of their witnesses' identity disclosed. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, here in this um, document that I have pulled up right here, uh, this was the uh, search warrant referencing the uh, AT&T for Brian Koberger's historical phone pings. In here, it states uh, Brett Payne, who was the investigating... Uh, uh, officer, having given me proof upon oath on this day showing probable cause establishing grounds for issuing a search warrant. Probable cause believe the property consists of certain evidence regarding the investigation of the crimes of the homicide at 1122 King Road in Moscow, Idaho, and that the AT&T account associated with the phone number, which is Brian Koberger's, uh, between November 12th and November 14th. Information in the uh, location is stored. Now, they asked, you know, in the search warrant, it, it, it's privileged as to what exactly they're looking for and how to you know issue that over now there's a lot of documents in here uh, but this is the only one referencing the search warrant at that time everything else comes after the fact they like seal like motion to seal and stuff like that now i've seen other search warrants before and usually they don't just say that the investigator gave them proof there's they actually talk about the proof that was given like for instance in the ronald logan uh, search warrant where they searched his house in the Delphi murder case. And they indicated that, you know, he had created an alibi prior to the bodies being found. And that was a sign that he had, you know, beforehand knowledge of the crime, um, things of that nature. None of that is stated here. All it says is, you know, Brett Payne gave him proof. What do you think about like a search warrant that's this simple? No, you're right. It, it is supposed to be a lot more specific than that. Like, um, you know, it's it's got to be based on clear and convincing, articulable facts. And having given me proof, that sounds to me like that wouldn't cut it. I would attack that if I was a defense attorney. Like try to, um, like a motion to quash the search warrant and suppress evidence uh, gained as a result of that. Yeah. Yeah, see, this was one of the biggest issues that I have. And if they end up doing that, I mean... Any evidence that they found or used because of that would be suppressed as well, right? Yeah, yeah. That's the fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, if the tree is bad, the fruit is bad. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, I I, I see why Brian Cover's defense team is fighting so hard. I think there is some stuff here that are going to be some hurdles for the states, the state's, you know, case. I do think that Koberger's the guy. I think they got the guy. Uh, I think that there might be a possibility that the law enforcement may have jumped the gun a little bit. I think that maybe they should have found more evidence before arresting him. Yeah. Because it seems yeah. like after his arrest, they haven't found much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be a slam dunk. I'll tell you that. Like, um, 
And if I'm not mistaken, the trial is scheduled to last for six weeks. And yeah. um, judging by what I'm seeing here, like um, it's anybody's guess. Because yeah. re remember, like, um, let, let's assume arguendo he is the guy. Like, you know, the state still has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he did it. And, you know, if they can't, then he's acquitted. Now, that being said, you know, like the um, the family members of the victims, they can still sue him for civilly for like wrongful death. That's what they did with OJ. You know, he was acquitted, but then he was found liable for the death of um, the woman. Mm. <laughs> so um, e even if Koberger gets out of this, you know, he's still not going to be out of the woods, I don't think. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's going to be some hurdles. I mean, you know, just kind of going over everything. You have the, the Brady Giglio. You have the uh, the possibility of only one source of DNA on the sheath. Uh, you have, you know, in my opinion, this very weak, weak, you know, deal here when it comes to his search warrant for his phone pings. Now, I think that the have given me proof is, hey, we got the genealogical stuff that we can't use, but it's pointing at this guy and the judge is like, all right, cool. That's good enough for me. Let me sign off on this. You know, yeah. I, I think that's probably what happened. Um, Sounds like it. And do you guys have any other last questions? We're getting kind of close to the end here. Yeah. Well, go ahead, Jaime. Go ahead. Uh, I agree with you, Danny. You should have, you know, look for more evidence uh, from the beginning than the end, right? Because if yeah. if it doesn't go in their favor. You know, and he gets a non-guilty verdict. He can't be charged again for the same crime, right? Nope. Yeah, that double jeopardy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's gonna be a big loss. Mister, let's uh, add a question for you. Okay. Uh, if you were defending him, if you were defending him, and he already pleaded pleaded the fifth, would you allow? I would you? I mean, it's up to him. But do you think it's a good idea for him to plead the fifth again during the case, during the court hearing? Uh, it wouldn't hurt. I mean, he's already pleaded the fifth. So, I mean, like, uh, as long as the pleading is on record, I, I mean, it, it wouldn't hurt for him to plead again. And frankly, I think this was another topic on, on that last show you had, um, like, is he going to testify? Yeah. If I were his lawyer, I'd advise him not to testify, you know, like, uh, cause I really haven't liked anything that's he's like <laughs> said thus far. And uh, I don't think any kind of testimony would help him, like from him. So I would advise him to not testify, just keep his mouth shut. Um, so pleading the fifth is probably the best thing for him individually. And if the if the state wants to um, reinvoke that, you know, like because see, here's another thing that y'all might not know about, like um, when you're investigate, like when you're arrested and you're questioned. And you think, I played the fifth, like I played my right to silence and my right to counsel. They can leave you, the police can leave you alone and then come back 30 minutes later and try the same thing. And um, you actually have to plead your rights again, like while you're being questioned. Because if you start spilling the beans, if you start talking, then they can use that against you. So a lot of people don't know that they can stop the investigation and restart it. They can start the interrogation. They can stop and then restart. So it's probably a good idea to plead the fifth again, like on the record, you know, just to have it, you know, just for safety's sake. Yeah. 
Well, that makes sense because I know that there was um, some statements that were out there that uh, apparently at his arrest that the Pennsylvania uh, investigators were talking to him a little bit. And then he uh, asked for a lawyer. And then we found out that the uh, uh, the defense has been you know, sending in motions that they want a copy of, I guess, another interview that Koberger did with uh, investigators uh, from Moscow over the phone. And, you know, there was a big question like, well, you know, he asked for his lawyer at one point, you know, is that true that I I guess, I mean, it seems like it's possible that he could have spoken to uh, Moscow over the phone after all. And that'd be a completely separate situation from when he invoked his rights for counsel the first time. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. You got to be really careful with the police, you know, like they, they are not your friends. They are there to put you in jail. (laughs) <laughs> that's true that's mm-hmm. true um do you have any uh zach do you have any questions for us or comments or anything um not really i mean like it's been a, a wonderful group wonderful chat and uh very educational i didn't know much about this case and now i learned quite a bit about it i think i'll be following it from now on to see what happens <laughs> i guess it's the next casey anthony case right right yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's it's definitely one of the the, the bigger ones that is going on right now. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're going to be covering it. There's a court hearing on the August 18th, referencing uh, the demiss the uh, I guess the uh, the grounds for dismissal on the uh, grand jury. We'll see how that goes. We'll be going live then. We'll be going. I'll be going live tomorrow as well. So make sure you hit that like and subscribe button. Uh, I'm going to be going over uh, some of the maps and the routes that Brian Koberger may have taken. Uh, after the fact and the, and the and the following day as well you don't want to miss it so make sure you hit that hit those buttons zach thank you so much for for joining us we appreciate you and giving us you know your insight on your professional insight on a lot of the questions that we had uh, thank you so much uh, again you guys if you guys are interested in a uh, an attorney if you have some you know criminal issues or family law issues look up look up zach his information is in the description and He'll be a man to take care of you guys. Yeah. <laughs> thank you very much for having me. Really appreciate thank it. You. Thank you for being yeah. on. Yeah, thank thank you. you. That being said, we'll see you guys tomorrow. Peace.